Let's read in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, page 1013. We're going to read from verse 33, then we'll pray, and then we're going to look at these words. And let me say to the children as well, if you're listening to this, or if you're able to read, then you will find Jesus saying something about you, and we'll come to that. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No, no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for me. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we look at it just now, each of us, from the youngest to the oldest, would be conscious of you speaking to us that we would be stimulated and provoked and challenged. We ask that we would be doers as well as hearers of your word. In your name, amen. Okay, if you um, go back in this to verse 31, Jesus is teaching his disciples. They don't understand what he's saying, and they are afraid to ask him. Verse 32 They didn't understand what he meant. They were afraid to ask him about it. And he now, when they come to Capernaum, to the house, uh, a village which he knew really well, they knew really well, he begins to teach them again, and he uh, disciples them, if you like, because that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, and to be a disciple, you need to be taught. And that, of course, is why we keep laying this emphasis in the church here on teaching God's Word on a Sunday, but also in our fellowship groups and in uh, mentoring and so on, that we learn and we uh, teach. Now, what Jesus then does is there are a series of sayings that come here. I think they are very much connected. It's not necessary that they were all said at this particular time. And this, this, of course, is at Uh, the very most, just a summary of some of the teaching that was given. 
But I want to look at three basic choices that if you profess to be a Christian, that you have. And we're calling them discipleship choices. The first is this, first or last. This is an extraordinary argument that they had. It was an argument that went on in Palestine. Where would you sit at the table? Um, If you come to our house, you know that we've got a big table. And there's an order of precedence. Annabelle sits at the head of the table, and I sit at the bottom. And then we do, now it depends how posh you are. You can do man, wife, or, you know, male, female, male, female. Where do the children sit and so on? Actually, we're not too bothered. Sit wherever you want. Someone sat in my chair yesterday. Not naming them, Mr. Brown. But, <laughs> but that's, that's what people do. I mean, you, 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 we, we just sit. You know, you come into a table, you sit down. But in this culture, where you sat at the table was really, really important. And if you've been well brought up, when you go into a room and you're into a dining room and, and you're learning manners, and you've learned manners, you wait to be told where to sit because you sit in a certain way. Well, this culture in the Palestinian culture, uh, the Jewish culture in Israel at that time, it was very, very, that was very, very important. Now, that's what makes this really, really weird. Because here, Jesus has been teaching them about what is going to happen to him. They've had this extraordinary incident with a demon-possessed boy who they were not able to heal, and Jesus was able to heal. And these men, who were mostly fishermen, they were not the luxury, uh, you know, the kind of top echelon guys. They're arguing about who is going to be the greatest. They thought that Jesus was going to become king, and they were basically asking, which job are we going to get? It's as though you're in the Labour Party, you're an MP, Ed Miliband's elected, 19 of you get elected to the cabinet, you start asking, I want to be Foreign Secretary, I want to be this, I want to be that. So these fishermen are arguing, when you come into your kingdom, Lord, can I be in charge of this? Can I do this? Can I rule over this? And they were arguing about who was to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, they knew it was wrong, because when Jesus comes up to them and says, what were you arguing about on the road? They keep quiet. I think that um, sometimes we need to remember that we are in the presence of Christ all the time. All deeds and all words are spoken in his presence. But for Jesus, this was very important. And in verse 35, you'll see it says, He sat down and he called the twelve to him, and they sat round him. And he dropped this bombshell on them. If you want to be first, you must be the very last and the servant of all. Pride is a really common sin. We are all, by nature, born Pharisees. We often think that we are better than we are or that we deserve more than we have. Pride prevents repentance, keeps us away from Christ, and harms Christian unity. And so what Jesus does, he deals with pride in this. And this is what he says, that if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you find it not by being first and by being in charge, but you find that greatness by being a servant rather than a master. Now, this is not against the idea of ambition, of trying to be the best that you can be. It's just giving us a different ambition. And here, Instead of the ambition to rule, there is the ambition to serve. Instead of the ambition to have things done for us, there is the ambition to do things for others. 
I think we need to actually think about that because that's so countercultural to our world. I think it's the, the, the world's idea of greatness is to rule. There's a story told of Alexander the Great, who uh, was very impressed by a Greek, a, a Spartan man called Paderotus. 300 men were chosen to govern Sparta, and he was a candidate. Now, he was considered to be probably the best of the candidates. When the list of the successful was announced, he wasn't on it. And his friend said to him, I'm sorry that you are not elected. The people ought to have known what a wise officer of state you would have made. And Paderotus replied, I am glad that in Sparta there are 300 better men than I. Alexander told that story often to his troops. Christian greatness consists for us in serving. We need to ask what service we can give, particularly to our fellow Christians. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis that I've got up there. I think it's from The Weight of Glory. It's a very profound quote about how we regard other people. It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And what Lewis was saying there was the people you meet in your street, the people who are next door to you, the people in your home, the people at your work, the people in this church, the people outside this church that at some point in the future, they are either going to be so glorious that it is almost as though they were like God, or so hideous as though they were like the devil. He's saying human beings are such wonderful creations, but we are not yet what we shall be. And part of, a huge part of being a Christian, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is being willing to serve others. And as I say, that is so countercultural because not only does it go against an inherent selfish human nature, it goes against a culture which says, everyone is here to serve me. There's a kind of selfishness that is pandered to in general in terms of our culture. And that is reflected often in the church that we are like these fishermen who have been called to follow Jesus and who after witnessing the most spectacular miracle and hearing the most extraordinary teaching, what are they talking about? They're talking about how great they are going to be. And that's why Jesus calls the child to him. He makes the child stand. And again, in that culture, as Jesus is sitting and the disciples are around him, to have the child stand was a mark of great honor for the child. In other words, what Jesus is doing pictorially is he's saying, none of you, this child, this child, probably you don't even know their name, this child who you've just ignored, this child who you've just wished, I wish they'd go away at the creche, this child, you've got to be like this child. 
He's in the circle. He's hugged. The world says that in order to change things and have influence, we need to go to the powerful, to the famous, to the rich, to the beautiful people. A child has no influence. A child cannot advance us. A child cannot give us things. Christ calls the child and says, you have to serve the weakest and the lowest of my flock. And look at the incentive that he gives. Verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. When we help the weak, when we help the helpless, when we help the outcast, we may be laughed at by the world. We may not be making money, but the Son of God knows what we do, and He knows that we are welcoming Him. Look at Matthew chapter 25. It's well known, but let's read it anyway. Matthew 25, verse 31, page 995. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave Me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. You cannot read this passage, as so many do, as Jesus saying, now go out. Go out and just be kind to people and be good to people. What Jesus is saying here is, this is the definition, this is the criteria by which whether we truly believe and follow Jesus is judged. Our attitude and what we do with those who are in this need, and particularly in the passage that we're looking at, he's talking about the children. And we're so like the disciples in some ways, at least some of us anyway. I think that, you know, there's an attitude in our culture. We have two things in our culture about children which are quite extraordinary. There are some there's an attitude of almost worshipping children. And then there's an attitude of despising children. And I think that what we need is just the attitude of Jesus Christ, which is that children are always welcome. And try and get this into your heads. Children are never a nuisance. Okay? Especially you young guys. You're never a nuisance. Remember that. Okay, Elsa? Yes. That's it. You got it. You're never a nuisance. Now, you can be bad, 
but you're never a nuisance. You know, sometimes, because sometimes adults can kind of, kind of like say when a child comes up, you know, go away, I've got more important things to do. There's nothing more important. Okay? Jesus said that. And it's very, very important. And uh, one thing that you can always do as a child, no matter what age, you can always come to Jesus. He's not going to look at you and say, you're not important enough for me. Actually, you are. And he told his disciples, look, you've got to welcome the children. Second question, verses 38 to 41, where now he's going on to a different matter. He's talking about what's in and what's out. They argue, they bring on another question. John says, we saw a man driving at demons and we told him to stop. He was not one of us. He wasn't one of the disciples. Maybe they understood now. There was... There had been many people who initially followed Jesus. Now it appears as only the 12, same number as the tribes of Israel. They were not to fight amongst themselves now that they had their own wee tight group. Maybe they were getting somewhere. But now through John, they asked Jesus, what about this man who's not actually one of us? Here's a man who's doing a good work. In fact, there may even be an irony here because the disciples were unable to cast out a particular demon in the earlier incident, and here is this man who's not one of them who seems to be doing that. He was on the same side as the apostles, but he was not working with the apostles. Now, what is Jesus teaching in this in terms of in or out? I think he's warning us that there's sometimes a narrow-mindedness among some Christians which doubt that the Lord works in any other way except through them and their church or denomination. It's uh, a common fault that can happen. The story is told, I'll not even name the denomination, the story is told of somebody who went to, okay, well, yes, who went to heaven and uh, being shown around by St. Peter, and uh, there's a, a wall. I said, what, what's in there? I said, oh, that's where the free Presbyterians are. Why? Well, because they think they're the only ones in here. Well, that's really unfair in the Free Presbyterians. We could say the Free Church, you could say whatever you want. But there is an attitude that some of us have as Christians that, in a sense, is right because we have a concern for truth and what God's Word says, but that can easily spill over into a kind of spiritual pride which results in us thinking that we are the last stronghold of the pure gospel and that anyone who's not part of us well, we really question whether they are a Christian. Uh, you see that. You see that in churches. You see it in churches here in Dundee as well, and it could easily be a fault that would come in here that we'd say, yeah, yeah, we believe in all the church of Jesus Christ, but if they don't come here, then there's really got to be something suspect about them. Now, there are people who have that mentality. There are Christians, and I don't think it's anything to do with the glory of Jesus Christ and with the kingdom of God advancing. It's got simply to do with their own insecurities, that if I go to this church, it must be right. Therefore, anyone else who doesn't come, there's got to be something wrong with them. And if you hear of wonderful things going on in another church or in another situation, and they're not part of your group, there's almost a little bit of jealousy, and you're saying, Lord, Lord, what, what do we do with this? It's like in Numbers 11:28, when Eldad and Medad were prophesying in the camp. We read, Joshua, son of Nun, who'd been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Lord, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. 
you are really, really advancing in Christian holiness when somebody tells you that such and such a person is a better preacher than you, a better teacher than you, a better Christian than you, and you actually feel glad that you're happy that the kingdom of God is growing and advancing. There is such a thing as absolute truth. We must know that. But we have to be very careful who believe in absolute truth because we can easily tip over into intolerance and arrogance and pride. Because although there is absolute truth, neither you nor I know it all. We never know it all. Intolerance, writes one man, is often a sign of arrogance and ignorance, for it is a sign that a man believes there's no truth beyond the truth he sees. Now, I know that in our culture, people argue for tolerance, and it's a nice buzzword, and what happens is that a lot of Christians then turn around and argue against it, never argue against tolerance. Christians should be very, very, very tolerant people. Why? Because we know there's an absolute truth, because we know we ourselves don't have it all and don't know it all, because we know that only God is sovereign, not us, and because we know that tolerance doesn't mean acceptance and approval of things that are wrong, but it just means that we realize we haven't got it all. We're not there yet, absolutely, in everything. And we, I think one of the things that we need to learn as Christians is to tolerate a lot more. You know, you, you hear an expression of somebody, oh, they don't tolerate fools gladly. And some of you will even boast that, I don't tolerate fools gladly. Well, you've got a real problem then because you're not going to tolerate yourself because all of us are foolish in so many ways. In or out, doubtless, they were not sound in some things. Doubtless, there are people who do not do things as we would like them to. But maybe they might be laboring for Christ. Better the work should be done by other hands than by none at all. In Philippians 1 verses 15 to 18, Paul talks about people who went out to preach and their motivation for preaching was so that it would cause trouble for Paul. They knew that if they went out and preached, then Paul, who was already in prison, would have more punishment. And what does Paul say to that? He doesn't accuse them of being Machiavellian and manipulative. He says, I rejoice that whether from good motive or bad, Christ is being preached. Now, the point about this is just simply that we are to be open-hearted and open-minded towards our fellow Christians. And in verse 41 in particular, we are to give hospitality. We have to show evidence of the faith that we have in the gospel we profess. Third thing, it's just simply this. Oops. Sin or salt, verses 42 to 50. To sin is bad enough. To teach others to do so is worse. Now, I think that this is really referring back to the children and how we educate and how we teach our children and what example we give to our children. But I think it's also likely to be referring to new believers. And in both instances, we can hinder, we can question their faith, we can question their enthusiasm, we can cause them to stumble and to fall. And again, I want to say this particularly about the children, by the way. When you're, when you're a small child, you ask lots of questions. And I know, again, let me say this to you children, you've got mega brains, okay? Uh, yes, you've got, that's right, you have. You've got mega brains, and you can think, and you've got lots and lots of questions. And don't worry about asking questions. That's how we learn. I think it's very important for all of us 
that we, we listen to children and we try and teach and we try and help. We do that also with new believers. Now, Jesus talks about here, He talks about stumbling, causing people to stumble, and really are ourselves stumbling. And He uses the most extreme language to emphasize the seriousness of sin. Cut your hand off, pluck out your eye, a millstone tied around your neck. There were two kinds of millstones in Palestine, one that was at home and the one that took a donkey to turn it. And that's the one that Jesus was talking about. There was no chance of return if that millstone was tied around your neck and you fell down the well. It was a punishment. It was a means of execution in Palestine. And Jesus is saying, this is really serious, and you need an element of self-control and self-discipline in discipleship. 1 Corinthians 9.27, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, at some point, people will generally listen to something like this, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's good. Listen to children and inclusive. You know, this is, hey, Dave, you, you know, you could get to preach in St. Giles or, uh, you know, any one of the kind of more liberal places or the, you know, metropolitan church, or you'll even get on the BBC with language like that. It's inclusive. It's about pro-child friendly and so on, and that's exactly what it is, except Jesus then comes in with this, teaching something would get him banned off the BBC because he teaches about hell. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is Jesus who is love. This is Jesus who is gentle, and this is Jesus who is speaking about hell. The Old Testament barely mentions, barely hints at hell, but Jesus does. He mentions it three times here. The worm never dies, the fire is not quenched. Quoting from Isaiah, explaining Isaiah, they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. That, says Jesus, is where sin leads. To be complete in the world's judgment, but to go to hell is infinitely worse than to be limited in worldly terms in what you do, but to enjoy eternal life. I think that there are things that, as William Barclay puts, they come between us and a perfect obedience to the will of God. But however much habit and custom may have made it a part of our lives, it must be rooted out. Jesus is taking these disciples, and instead of dealing just with their ambition and pride, he's going right to the very heart of the matter, and he's saying to them, listen, this is where your ambition and pride leads. You cause people to stumble, and it would be so much better for you that your hand was cut off, that your eye was plucked out, than for you to cause people to stumble. And there's a, a very strong motivation, by the way, for those of us who are Christians, because a lot of us, our motivation does tend to be about ourselves. Oh, I need to be more holy. Oh, I need to live closer to Jesus, because that will be better for me. The motivation here is, no, it's not that it's better for you, but it's better for the children. It's better for the people who watch you. It's better for the people who observe you. It's better for your friends in class. It's better for your workmates. It's better for your family that you live close to Jesus, and that you follow Jesus. Otherwise, you're leading people away. 
Now, this last verse about the salt, that's a, a more difficult one. One of the most difficult verses is in the Old Testament, verses 49 and 50. The fire could be of purification and persecution, but I think overall what's just simply saying is that salt gives flavor and is a preservative, and that what's needed in our culture and in our society is more flavor and more preservation of what is good. Heathen society is basically boring and decaying. Now, I'm going to quote someone I never thought I'd quote approvingly in a church, and that's Russell Brand. Uh, I was sent by my son uh, an interview with Russell Brand, and my initial reaction, I have to say, was, oh, no, what has Aberdeen done to him? Uh, Russell Brand. But I watched this interview, and I found it totally, totally fascinating. Um, if you know Russell Brand, you know he's also flamboyant and, you know, effervescent and hands everywhere and hyper continually. And yet, for me, it was an astonishing interview. And this is what he says about the culture. Let me put this up because I thought this was great. He's, at, he's been asked about Jeremy, by Jeremy Paxman, you know, ambition and society and so on. This is what he says. I'm utterly bored of it. I want to ascend. I don't want to be here for much longer. And Paxman says, what, you mean you want to die? And Brand says, no, not die. But he says, I, I don't want to dwell here with such trivial things for very much longer. Between now and death, it would be ever so nice if I were able to achieve something that was truly valuable. And he talks about himself and how in Essex his whole aim was just to be famous. And now he is famous. And he says this, I was seduced by this narrative of fame and celebrity, and now I'm famous. And what does it mean? Ashes in my mouth. I'd like to explore the possibility of aspiring to greater things. Many have said, Jeremy, the fact that we desire these products, that we have these aspirations, and he's talking about commercial society, that we have these aspirations is an indication that we can still change, that we can still strive, that we have within us a yearning for something higher. Someone told me once that all desire is this desire to be at one with God in substitute form. So perhaps we can draw attention not to the shadow on the wall, but to the source of light itself. And at that point, Paxman said, utterly astonished, he said, do you believe in God? And Brand says, yes. Yes, I do. And Paxman's face, you never you really see Jeremy Paxman being astounded. He was astounded. He said, I, I'm, I'm really surprised. Really? Do you go to church? Do you pray? You know, and the, the discussion then goes on. But what fascinated me about that, here is a man who, if you read his book, My Bookie Wookie, which is, the title says enough, doesn't it, really? My Bookie Wookie. And it's, I mean, in a merciful piece of, of, of advertising, part two is called My Bookie Wookie Part Two. You know, and, and I mean, there'll be hundreds of thousands of people will buy that book and will read it. And what did the book say? It says, I, I went for fame. I did the drugs. I can sleep with as many women as I want. And here's this guy, and he comes on television, and he's incredibly articulate, being interviewed seriously, and he says, it's all ashes in my mouth. It's all empty. It's just empty. And yet, People will buy that book and go, that's what I want to be. I want to be like Russell Brand. And he's saying it's empty. No, it's not. This is, this is useless. I, I've, I, there's got to be something better. Now, all you've got to do is read Ecclesiastes, and you realize, of course, that that's what Ecclesiastes says. But this is where we come in in terms of being salt. Christians are meant to bring flavor to life. You know, we're an antiseptic to the poison of life. The world needs the flavor and the purity that only the Christian can bring. And if, if the Christian himself has lost the thrill and purity of the Christian life, where will the world ever get these things? You know, Russell Brand looks for that. 
Will he find it in the church? Probably not. Because the church is bland in so many ways. Just bland. And we, we've got to have salt within ourselves. That's what Jesus says. Have salt within yourselves and be at peace with each other. The purity of the Holy Spirit within the life of the believer, the life that is cleansed of self and filled with Christ is the only life which can live in real fellowship with other human beings. That's really discipleship. The saving grace of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We don't seek preeminence for ourselves. We are clothed with humility and loving all who love Christ. Without peace within the community, hostility from without will lead believers to turn away, to apostatize. So, as Christians, stop arguing about who is the greatest, serve all, including and perhaps especially the children, and don't stop those who are seeking to do the work of Christ. To avoid causing sin, be at peace with other believers. All that counts is allegiance to Jesus, not greatness, not adulthood, not following us. I I, I think that the church in the West is in enormous danger because we've swallowed celebrity culture as well, and we create churches around individuals and personalities. Do you listen to Mark Driscoll? Do you listen to this person? Do you listen to that person? That's what so much of Christian TV and other stuff is about. It's not like that in the Bible. It's meant to be all about Jesus Christ. If the flavor is of ourselves, it's never going to work for the Russell Brands of this world. If the flavor is of Jesus Christ, then it will draw and attract people. May God bless His Word to us.